Well, good evening. Can you hear me? They told me not to turn my mic on, that they would turn it on. I'm not used to that. Troy sent me a letter that said he wanted everyone to think a bit about the theme of Jesus as the Good Shepherd this summer. I don't know if others have paid attention to that theme. I usually don't even give people a theme. I just tell them do whatever they want, and so far that's worked pretty well. I'm going to sort of do what I want tonight, but I will note for you that John 10 is probably the text, and probably somebody's already preached on that, or they will preach on that. And there John calls Jesus the good shepherd. Well, if there is a shepherd, then there are sheep, and I am one of those sheep, and so are you. And what I want to ask tonight is a simple question. What does the shepherd want from me? When we think about Jesus as the good shepherd, a lot of times people say, well, what does he do? What does he do for me? And there's lots of things we could talk about. But what does John lay out in his gospel in relation to what the good shepherd who is Jesus Christ, what does he want from me? Have you ever just sat down and said, well, what am I supposed to do? Sometimes Christianity just seems to complicated that I think we just kind of shut down and stop thinking about it entirely. What does Jesus want from me? Let me give you three words that are really important in the Gospel of John. And that's why when Andy asked me, I said we would just talk about the Gospel of John. Because fundamentally, that's what we're going to end up doing tonight as we look at our obligations to the Good Shepherd. There are three words that are very important in the Gospel of John. They are believe, they are love, and they are follow. If you're a Bible marker, you need to take you three colored pencils. And as you go through the Gospel of John, mark each one of those words with a different color. And you'll begin to see that over and over, these words begin to form the theme of the Gospel of John. Over and over in the Gospel, Jesus says, believe on me. What does that mean exactly? Over and over, he says, love me. Okay, that's a word that gets thrown around a lot. What does it mean, and what does John mean? When, well, that's half of it, or when he uses it. Over and over, he says, follow me. Maybe two of the most daunting words ever put together and spoken on the lips of Jesus. What does that mean? So what does he want from me? Well, first and foremost, the good shepherd calls me to believe on him. The Gospel of John is an ancient document, an ancient evangelistic document designed to take a person from not understanding who Jesus Christ is and moving them to a point of belief in him as the Messiah of the world. This is its purpose. From the very beginning of the gospel, what John has wanted to do is take you to that conversation that occurs between Thomas and Jesus. Remember that famous conversation? We call him Doubting Thomas. It's not very kind to Thomas. Thomas did what most of us would do. If I'd had an opportunity to see Jesus and I had missed the opportunity, then I would have wanted to see him. And remember how that conversation goes? Jesus says, see here the hole in my side. See with your fingers. See the holes in my, in my wrist. And Thomas sees all this and he takes it all in. And remember his reply, my Lord 
and my God. That is the entire purpose of the Gospel of John, right there. To take someone from the opening of understanding who Jesus is in the early verses of chapter 1 in the discussion about the Word and His eternal nature to saying and confessing and living in accordance with the confession that Thomas makes. My Lord and my God, that is its purpose. And John gives this purpose statement for the gospel in John 20 and 30. He says, therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed. In the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe, just like Thomas did that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. This could be translated as you go about believing, as that belief directs and infiltrates and becomes the worldview that you act upon as people see it working in your life. And the word that's here translated belief as well is not just the idea of mental assent to, to a concept. It is the idea of total trust. It is the idea of committing yourself totally to someone because you completely and utterly trust that individual. It's way more than just a mental idea. John 3 and 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only unique son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes, John says, see, there's our word. It comes up over and over. In him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only unique son of God. But what does that believe Mean. I meet people all the time, all the time, who say, I believe in Jesus. Well, what do they mean? Is that the purpose of the gospel, just to cause us to have some mental idea that Jesus existed, that he was probably from heaven, that he was a really nice guy, and he did some really nice things while he was here on earth, and then he died for our sins, and now he's up there somewhere, and I believe all that. I believe he exists. Was that what God or what Jesus was trying to do for the disciples, or was there far more to it than that? In John 6, Jesus has just fed the 5,000, and they were ready to take him and to make, them, make him their king. And they wanted him to overthrow the Roman government. And after he had fed them with bread and they had followed him across the sea. They found him the next day, and they started to give him hints that they wanted more food. And Jesus looked at the crowd, and he said this in John 6 and 27. He said, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. So the crowd said, Okay, he wants us to work for him so that he will give us some food. So they asked, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. But what does that mean? Well, first of all, believing is conviction. It does involve being convinced, but there's a difference between being convinced of something 
and being genuinely convicted that this is a life-altering truth and that you're going to act upon it. And this is what Jesus is looking for. He's looking to alter your life based on his character and the truth of who he is. Jesus is exactly who he claims to be. That's what the conviction is based upon. Think of all the I am statements in the gospel of John. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. And the one that I thought about tonight, I am the good shepherd, John 10. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. I am the lamb of God. So he's both the shepherd and the lamb. And each of those statements is telling us something about the character of the one that that statement describes. Do you believe? Are you convinced? Are you more than that? Are you convicted that Jesus is all of these things? See, that's where we have to start. The first half of believing in Jesus involves allowing yourself then to listen and to be open and to be convicted and to be convinced that Jesus is really who he claims to be. Notice the way John works this in his gospel. The Samaritan woman is probably the greatest example in the gospel of John of someone starting from not knowing who Jesus is to moving to a true understanding of his character. She comes to a well, this is John 4, and she meets Jesus. And when she first meets him, she says, he is a Jew. Well, that was pretty obvious. She could look at him and and tell that fact about him. She could hear it in the accent of his voice. But she hangs out with him for a little while longer. So she's hanging around Jesus and she's paying attention to Jesus. And she says, you know what? He's a Jew, but he might also be a prophet. So she remains with an, with an open mind. And by the time you get all the way down to verse 25 in chapter 4, she says, we know that the Messiah is coming. Could this be the one? Could this guy be him? What is happening here? She is open to the idea. She is willing to be convicted. She's willing to be convinced that Jesus is who he claims to be. And as a matter of fact, this Samaritan woman got so convicted that Jesus was the Messiah that she runs back to her village and she tells everyone that she had indeed found the Messiah that they were waiting for because she was totally convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. And so they all came out to see him. And then comes John 4 and 42, which says, And they were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of you what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. These people were convicted. They were convinced. They had the first part of what it means to believe in Jesus. They had the beginning element of faith. And I would predict that 90% of the people that exist in the church have this first element, have this first part of biblical faith. They are convinced, they are convicted that Jesus is who he said he was. But there's another part of this. Belief is not just being convicted or being convinced. Belief is also commitment. 
And we see in the Gospel of John that the shepherd is asking the sheep to commit, not just to be convinced. Said a different way, if as far as I go is understanding the character and nature of Jesus, uh, then my Christianity becomes worthless. There is a need to take that information and to put it into action. Believing, then, is also commitment. In the Gospel of John, believing includes deciding something. It includes deciding to make a choice to act based on my conviction of who Jesus is. And that is something in an entirely different universe from a simple intellectual assent to his character. It's an entirely different kind of faith. And many people who have the first part never really get to the second, but Jesus is calling us to the second part. And you see this in the Gospel of John. In John 12 and 42, nevertheless, many of the rulers believed in him. They were impressed by him. They were convinced and they were convicted about who he was. This is one of the most incredible statements in all the Gospels. Maybe in the top five most incredible in the Gospel of John itself. The next part of it is, but they were, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. That is a staggering statement. If you think about the fact that these men had been, since they were knee high to a grasshopper, since they could conceptually understand language they had been taught about the Messiah. And now they are saying, we are, we are convinced this guy is it, but there's no way we're committing our lives to him. Because to do that would mean to have to give up everything in our lives. It's incredible that they didn't just say, I will give up everything we need to give up to get to this one. It's an, a truly staggering statement, but it shows us that belief is far more real genuine belief than just being convinced that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. So the idea here is I can't really get serious about following this Jesus, really put myself out there, really become a dedicated follower, because if I do that, I'm going to get kicked out of the synagogue. I'm going to have to give up all kinds of things in my life. And the problem was that they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. So they believed like so many people often think of the term. They did not believe fully like the gospel of John is intended to produce. That is to cause you to come to a place where you make a choice, a life altering choice, often a very difficult choice, one that will cause hardship in your life, but a choice nonetheless. In John 9 and 22, there was a gentleman there that Jesus had interacted with, and his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was put out of the synagogue. So their son had been healed, and they knew that Jesus was the Messiah. They were convicted by the miracle that Jesus had worked in the healing of their son and taking away his blindness, but they would not commit to Jesus. Why? Because they'd be put out of the synagogue. Because it was too hard. It was too hard. It was going to cost them too much. 
to actually commit. So what does it mean to believe on Jesus? If I ask you this evening, do you believe on Jesus in a way that the gospel of John says we are to believe on Jesus? Notice John 1 and 12. But as many as received him, notice he didn't just say believe there. That's an interesting word. Not just thinking about Jesus, but received him. The idea there is I, I have brought him into my life entirely. There's an intimate connection that has occurred here. It's not just me thinking about Jesus, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Now in John 3, he'll talk all about what he means by that born. John, who are those that believe? If we ask that question, uh, there are those that accept without reservation Jesus as the ruler of their lives. They are those that allow Jesus to transform their lives completely so that they are born not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That is what John means when he says these things are written so that you might believe. So if you want a formula, someone says, what does it mean to believe? The, the two words that you can put together, you can put conviction then you can put an addition sign and you can put commitment and put your equal sign. And that equals believing. It's never just I believe. It's always, well, this is the way the, the, the Greek word that's used here. If, you, if you'd been raised in a, in a country that spoke Koine Greek and you had used this term, someone would have looked at you and said, well, what are you going to do about it? So it was far more than just the idea that you, you had an idea, but that it would emanate in your life in some way. So Jesus calls me to believe on him. Number two, he calls me to love him. We call, what do we call John? We call him the apostle whom Jesus loved, or we call him the apostle of love. There's a lot of reason for that. First John chapter four is one of those reasons, but so is the gospel of John itself. We sing, Jesus loves me, this I know. For, how does, that, how does that go? The Bible tells me so. I wouldn't know Jesus loved me without the Bible. Isn't that, isn't that an incredible thought? When we think about how important the Bible is. I wouldn't know God loved me if it wasn't for the revealed word of God that's been written down through the ages. John, or Paul says this in Romans chapter 1, that there's a lot of things I could know about God. I could know he was really powerful. I could know he could make a universe, but I wouldn't know he loved me. And this is a tremendous truth to come to. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Why is that? Because he first loved me. And that's an idea that's found in Romans 5. So if I ask any of you this tonight, do you, do you believe in Jesus? Everyone will say, well, of course I do. Then the follow-up question is, well, do you love Jesus? When you love someone, if you understand the word that is used here, the word agape, there aren't all that many Greek words that an English-speaking Bible student needs to know, but this is definitely one of them. When you understand this word agape, then you understand there is a responsibility. Uh, there is an obligation to the person that you love. John would write later, in 1 John 3 and 18, he said that little children, let us 
not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. See how we're still just moving into what we do, not what we're thinking about or what we intend, but the actual actions of of Christianity. So love means doing. John 21 and 15 says, So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, well, then tend my sheep. When we come to this moment in Peter's life, Peter has denied Christ. He has gone as far as to say, I do not even know the man. After the crucifixion, he hid with the rest of the disciples. After the resurrection, he had gone back to fishing. He just kind of washed his hands of the whole affair entirely. And one morning after they had been fishing, Jesus, in this case, the the risen Jesus, appears on the, the shores and he says, throw your nets out again. And they catch this huge draft of fish and they drag it up on the shore. And then Jesus cooks them breakfast. I find this absolutely astonishing that the risen Savior of the world cooks breakfast. I don't know if you find that astonishing or not, but it's the little things sometimes in the the scriptures that remind us about uh, the character of God. He's not above cooking breakfast. So I don't know what you want to do with that, but it's pretty amazing to me. That's not a detail you put in. In a book, if you're trying to fabricate it, that's for sure. And standing in front of this huge pile of fish, John actually gives a number in the gospel. That that always kind of stunned me a little bit, too. Apparently, they counted the fish. I don't know if because they were Jewish businessmen, they wanted to make sure they could get every last nickel they possibly could for their cash or what. But John has the number. Maybe the Holy Spirit told him. I don't know. But they're standing in front of a pile of fish, and Jesus says to Peter, do you love me more than these? Now, there's some debate here. Is Peter talking about the, or is Jesus talking about the other apostles, or is he talking about the fish? I, I don't think he's talking about the apostles, because that would put Peter in a position that would have been very unenviable, and even a position that would have caused some real difficulties and strife amongst the apostles. I think Jesus is looking at the fish. Peter, this represents your financial life. Here is your business. Do you love me more than the money and the material wealth this represents? See, this is going to be a watershed moment in the life of Peter. I thought you got out of the business of fishing. Jesus said, you know, I put you in a different business. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. In John 8 and 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not come from my own initiative, but he sent me. So he sent, God sent him. And in the Old Testament, the Old Testament said, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your your soul and with all of your your heart and with with all of your mind. What? That's a verse we quote all the time. I need to love God with all my heart and with all of my soul 
and with all of my mind. I'm not even sure that I comprehend what it means to love him completely with any one of those three parts. But I think Jesus is going to give us a picture here that helps us. How do I do that? Isn't that what Jesus is after when Jesus asks, do you love me, Peter? John 14 and 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's, that's not a that's not written grammatically in the form of, of a command. It's an indicative statement. It just means this is what will happen. This is the natural consequence of real love to Christ. We'll listen to what he has to say, and we will seek to conform our lives to that, not only in our thoughts, but even more importantly, in the actions that we commit. So loving Christ is like loving anybody else. It's an active, responsive love. If you love your kids, what are you going to have to do? Well, I think you're probably going to have to become financially destitute, or that seems to be what, what the, the road I've gone down. But if you love your kids, what are you going to do? You're going to feed them. You're going to clothe them. You're going to educate them. You're going to correct them when they need it. You're going to train them to understand right from wrong. You don't just say, I love you. Now go out and play in traffic. That's not what you do, is it? There's so many things that are occurring. I hope that's not what you do. There's so much that goes on. So there is an active element here. And this is expensive. I said that you become financially destitute. It's not cheap, is it? Raising children the right way is not cheap. It's not cheap in regard to the time or the actual money that goes into it. If you really love your kids, then you're going to act on their behalf in a positive manner. And when we think about Christ, if you really love Jesus Christ, then I'm, I'm going to be loyal to him. And I'm going to be ready to do what he asks of me. And the service that I render him is not going to be cheap. When I look at this statement that Jesus makes to Peter, I need to remember that Jesus is looking at me and he's saying, Luke, do you love me? And it's one thing for me to say, just like Peter does, and we'll see here in just a moment. Yeah, Lord, you're my buddy. Jesus is asking deep down inside, am I ready to do for him? what he wants me to do. In John 14 and 23, Jesus answered and said to them, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. He's just stating a fact. And my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. If we want to understand how love is defined, now here, here we're, we're getting into the meat of it. And the word which you heard is not mine, but the Father who sent me. There's a, there's a relationship that's very special and that is teased out in the Gospel of John between Jesus while he's on earth and God in heaven, and he refers to him as my Father. He doesn't refer to him as our Father, but he uses the term my Father. And what we do to the one who is Jesus in the Gospel, we do to the Father, or what we do for Jesus, we do for the Father. So if someone really loves Jesus actively, responsibly, in a committed way, then what Jesus is telling us here in John 14 is that God will make his presence 
with that person. And we can argue all day long about how exactly that works. I don't think the Bible actually tells us. But I know that I want the presence of God in my life. And if that is the case, then how I love Christ is all important. Now, remember back to poor old Peter in John 21. Here's verse 15. Let's read a little bit here, then let's take this passage apart and the lesson will be yours because I think I got about nine minutes here. This is if you forget everything else I've talked about tonight, mark this passage in your in your Bible. It's really powerful. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, well, tend my sheep. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said this to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, well, then tend my sheep. Peter, what are you doing out here fishing? I've called you away from the nets to do something that was awesome, something that is earth shaking, uh, something that will affect the world for all time, the spreading of the gospel. And here you here you are out on the sea fishing. Do you love me more than these? And this is one of those passages. There's not a lot in the New Testament, but this passage is a bit confusing uh, in the English Bible, it's one of those times when it's really good if you have a good center column reference where the translators help you out a little bit. Because Jesus asks a question and Simon Peter does the two-step right around it. The question that Jesus asks, Peter does not answer. In the English Bible, Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And Peter answers, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And it looks like that Peter is answering in the affirmative. But here's what really happens when you look at the original text. Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you agape me? In other words, are you really committed to my cause? And the way Peter answers is, well, I phileo you, Lord. That is, I really like you. You're my buddy. I'm very fond of you. I think a, a lot of you, but that doesn't really have the same feel to it, does it? The second time Jesus says, do you agape me? And Peter says, well, Lord, you know that I like you. He does not say that he loved Jesus. He says that I like Jesus. What's wrong here? And I think John wants us to see it. Some commentators will tell you there's no difference between these words and they're completely wrong in that if they understand the, the thread of the gospel of John. John wants us to see here that Peter's not committing. He's not doing what Jesus has called him to do. He wasn't ready for the feeding and the clothing and the tending of the lambs, of the followers of Jesus. What did he see when he looked at Jesus? When he saw Jesus, he looked at him and he saw a really good friend. He saw somebody he was really fond of. He saw someone that he was greatly respectful of. 
but he did not see someone that he was ready to serve. Peter has not yet learned how to love Jesus. And the third time Jesus says, do you love me? Uh, In the English, again, it looks like Jesus asked him the same question, but now he really just cuts Peter to the heart because the third time Jesus takes his word and he says, Peter, do you even phileo me? I mean, that's cold if you want to be, if you want to know the truth of it. Jesus has really just cut him like a knife. What he's saying is, do you even like me? I mean, you're, you're standing here confessing, but are you sure you even like me? And Peter, grieving at this point, says, Lord, you know that I like you. This is an intense conversation, and it's one that we need to see. But Peter did not yet have it in him to go the distance. And that is why he said what he said. And Jesus, in turn, said, follow me. So that brings us to our our final point. And that is Jesus calls me to, to follow him. In John 10 and 4, it says that Jesus goes ahead of the sheep and the sheep follow him. Do I have five minutes? Are we done? Okay. Let me try that again. John 10 and 4 says if that Jesus goes ahead of his sheep and the, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice and they will not follow a stranger. In John 1 and 43, we find Philip and he says, follow me. Jesus says that to him. But in the very last of John, the following gets serious. And that's what we see with uh, with Peter when Jesus is asking him to follow him. What we see is a committed, obedient following. Peter's stuck in a corner with Jesus and Jesus won't let him won't let him up. He says, here's a pile of fish, Jesus or Peter. Do you love me more than these? Do you even like me? And then comes the following statement in John 21 and 18. Truly, truly, Jesus says, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wish. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now, he said this to signify the kind of death that he would die by to glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. History tells us Peter was crucified upside down. Somewhere along the way, Peter decided that he was really going to love Jesus and that he was going to follow him no matter what that meant. But we could come to all kinds of excuses and Peter wasn't there yet. And with his back to the wall in verse 20, Peter turned around and he saw the disciple whom Jesus loved standing there, the one who had laid his back on the bosom of Christ at the supper. And he said, Lord, who is the, who is the one who betrays you? So Peter seeing him said to Jesus, Lord, and what about this man? You ever do that? Somebody backs you in a corner and really calls you to a commitment and you point a finger at somebody else. Peter says, I don't know why you're getting on me so much. What what about John? And what does Jesus say in return? If I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Really, there's two words 
you need to remember when it comes to Christianity. And that is, follow me. That's what we always do. Three words, though, from the book of John. What does Jesus want from me? He wants me to believe him. He wants me to love him. And he wants me to follow him. Thanks for listening.